The Truth News Network. They're listening in Moscow. They're listening in Berlin. They're listening in Hanoi. Where are you? You're on TNN. The Truth News Network. With Dan Newman. The very important and the critical part of that is you're listening wherever you are. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to TNN Live. Here we are the second day of September, looking right down the barrel of a Labor Day weekend. And normally what that means is we celebrate the final holiday before the kids go back to school. I remember when I was in school, South Louisiana, actually, we knew every year when school was going to start. It always started the day after Labor Day. Yep, that's right, Tuesday. I remember many times we were in uh, South Texas in the Houston area where my parents' families lived, and we would take that long weekend and run over to Houston from Lafayette, Louisiana, about 200 miles. Now, remember, this was before we had Interstate 10. We used old U.S. Highway 90 that went through every little town. Every town had at least one stoplight, right? So what now is a, about a three-hour drive, if you abide by the speed limit, was about six hours then. And I remember rushing back. We would leave the relative's house late on Monday and rushing back to Lafayette so we could get ready for school on Tuesday. Wow, how the world has changed. And it's still changing. I mean, things we thought just two or three years ago were just normal everyday okay things, they've all changed. And it seems like it's almost impossible to keep up with the changes. Most of them are social changes. And most of those social changes are defined, implemented, and of course then watched very carefully by the elitist in America that have taken unilateral authority to tell us what's acceptable today, right? Well, I can tell you this, it's become more and more obvious, no longer is it just to determine what is acceptable and what isn't. Now it's determined by the elitist that what's okay that they decide is okay to do or what's not okay to do, it doesn't apply to everybody. It just applies to people that wear that D above their heads, fellow Democrats. So where are we going with this today, Dan? I just want to point something out. I've always heard an old saying, not for me, but for thee, or not for thee, but for me. In other words, two classes of people own everything, and someone makes a determination which applies. So if you're a conservative, just... You just need to accept it. It doesn't matter. It is what it is, and whether or not you accept it, it's a fact. You don't have authority to think anything specifically. If you have a question about whether or not you can, whether or not it's right or wrong, find a Democrat and ask them. They've got all the answers. I know that's a little harsh, but I I must be honest, folks. It's about time we... um, we allow some harshness in our life that 
heretofore has been unacceptable and certainly not allowed. Facts have got to be thrust out into the marketplace of ideas and hammered over and over and over again. We don't need to explain facts. All we need to do is make certain that we put the truth on everything. I don't care what it is. If it's on chewing gum, we need to make sure the facts go along with the opinions that many of us always express. And we need to rely a little less on our opinions on which to determine facts. And just let the facts do the job. Just throw them out there. And if they object to them, give them the background information that justifies those facts, whatever they are. Whatever part of our government, whatever part of our lives to which they apply. If you keep doing that, don't get confrontational. Don't feel like you've got to get in everybody's face all the time. That's what they do. What they can't stand is someone very calmly responding with facts. Give it a try if you haven't done it so far. Well, wow, this has turned out to be a big week, and it's ending on a high note tomorrow morning. Roger Stone, former President Donald Trump's sidekick for a long time, close friend, confidant, worked together in many ways. Roger Stone is going to be with us live beginning right at the top of the show tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Central. We communicated with each other last night. We have throughout this week and last week. And we talked about the time that we're going to be able to spend together. He's got a very, very busy schedule. His, uh, As I think you've heard me say before, his wife is dealing with stage 4 cancer. And, of course, his life and the life of everyone in his family have changed dramatically in the last five years thanks to those elitist we were just referencing and how they came down on him. All of the horror and the furor in the Trump administration, the Russia collusion stuff, both impeachment trials, and Roger Stone going to jail, primarily just for being uh, uh, Donald Trump's friend. Robert Mueller and his uh, stable of henchmen, 20 angry, hardcore leftist Democrats, never Trumpers, they, they do their th- stuff in and out of the government. They've done it before. Every one of those attorneys, they're doing it again somewhere else now after the Mueller investigation. They just go after people who they disagree with. Facts don't really matter in that particular case. And so he's going to be here tomorrow morning. We're going to, he, he's not limiting his time. Um, we, we kind of put the first hour, 9 to 10 o'clock Central Time, we kind of put that up on the bulletin board, and we're going to shoot for that. But if it, if it just keeps going, folks, it will keep going. And you're going to want to make sure that you join the show. 9 a.m. Central Sharp, he'll be right there at the top of the hour. Uh, if you've got any questions, by the way, if you want me to ask him to hear his answers, feel free. Send me those emails today. Dan at truthnewsnet.org. Dan at truthnewsnet.org. And every time we have a special guest, a very famous national guest, which we do here, we don't do it every week, but at least once or twice a month we're able, and we've been fortunate enough to be able to get those people on this show for you. Um, We want to make sure you get answers that you want to ask these guests. 
So, jot them down, send them to me. Email's easy to do, isn't it? Or even text. My cell phone, maybe I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it. 318-470-2879. 318-470-2879. Either way, I'll get it, and we'll ask as many of your questions as we possibly can tomorrow when Roger Stone joins us. So, things have just totally calmed down. Man, we've got the southern border issue fixed. You hadn't heard any news about it this week, last week, probably three weeks. We got it taken care of. That's what what that means. If the media doesn't cover it, it's not an issue, right? And, of course, COVID-19, that's no longer an issue. The only issue is now is how the conservatives in our government don't understand our obligation to the Afghani people. We owe it to them. After all, we occupied their nation for 20 years, right? Our military was over there, and they couldn't get anything done. Nobody liked them because the U.S. military was there. And we owe them all kinds of favors. So much so that we just left the lives of 13 of our American military service members, members left their lives over there, took their last breaths over there last week. And of course, there's all kind, there's mass pandemonium going on regarding everything about Afghanistan. There are so many things that shouldn't have happened, that happened that were hidden. So many of those things, we'll never know all of them. We never will. But it seems like every day, something new pops out. Some new devastation, some new evil. And the latest, folks, let me just say this. If instead of Joe Biden as president, it was Donald Trump, and the circumstances we're going to dig into right now were identical, Donald Trump would be out of office in 24 hours. He would be impeached and removed. What are you talking about, Dan? Well, seems Joe Biden cut a deal with the Afghan government about a month and a half ago. And the deal was to hide from the world about how serious was the Taliban takeover threat of Afghanistan. It's out there, folks. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's factual. This president colluded with an evil, wicked, former um, professor at Columbia University that the United States government, we got him to be the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani. He's the guy that when all this started, this takeover, withdrawal, all that started a few weeks ago, He bailed on the country and left with a whole bunch of dollars and cents. You know, nothing that happens in Washington surprises me anymore. Absolutely nothing. Now, this is happening in Afghanistan, but it was all initiated from our capital, Washington, D.C. There's so much corruption in every aspect of our government. It's a lot easier today to just number the handful of honest politicians instead of trying to keep up and label all those who are dishonest. Then, of course, there's the corporate media. And they, folks, are complicit in almost, if not all, of the dishonesty in D.C. It's disheartening to me to understand that the very ones 
who are the sworn watchdogs for us rank-and-file Americans who basically own this country but are purposely kept in the dark, this group of media watchdogs are up to their eyeballs in this latest chapter of nastiness. In other words, these media sycophants are the only chance Americans have to know actual facts and governance. And they're just as vile as are the dishonest politicians who also swore to work for us. So who would have believed that this president, Joe Biden, actually used his political power to make a maniacal deal with the former Afghan president? So far, it's not known if the secret deal was to ever going to result in money-changing hands, even though it's reported that Ghani fled Afghanistan carrying a few bucks with him, like uh, $169 million in cash, U.S. cash. We've heard about that happening once before, and it did happen in a Biden-negotiated deal, that Iran deal. Remember when in the middle of the night that private jet took off and went over to Iran carrying a half a billion dollars in cash? Interesting, huh? So we don't know if there's cash involved in this yet. We're pretty sure it is. But what is known is that the pair, Ghani and Biden, colluded with a plan to portray the details surrounding the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in a light that is exactly opposite of how it played out. At least to this point, we're not through in Afghanistan. We're nowhere near being through, folks. There's a lot of this story yet to be revealed. Would you like to hear about this plot? And don't think it's a conspiracy theory. Reuters was the first to report about two phone calls and to get a transcript, an actual transcript, of one of the two telephone conversations. And so I'm certain you'd like to know the details. So we have them here. In the weeks before Afghanistan's total collapse, Biden and now exiled former Afghan President Ghani They cut a secret deal to deceive the world about how serious was the Taliban threat. The transcript of the last phone call between the two heads of state shows that our president specifically asked the Afghan president to downplay the potential resurgence of the foreign enemy, the Taliban. President Biden wanted the now-departed Afghan president to create the perception that his government, the Afghan government, was very capable to hold off the Taliban, an indication that he knew it was only a matter of time before the U.S. ally fell to the Islamic group, even at the same time reassuring Americans at home that, oh, it's not going to happen. The Afghan army, you remember Joe out there touting when he went, he got mad when he was asked a question. And he said, we've trained and funded and armed the Afghan military. They are ready for this. 300,000 of those military members, they're ready to go. Ball face lie. Ball face lie. In the last phone call between Biden and Ghani, 
Biden said they needed to change perceptions of the Taliban's rapid advance, whether it's true or not. That's according to excerpts from that call that were published on Tuesday. Four weeks before Kabul collapsed, Ghani pled for more air support, and he also pled for some money for his soldiers who hadn't had a pay raise in a decade. Hmm. Here's what Biden said. Hey, look, he's talking to Ghani. Hey, look, I want to make it clear. I'm not a military man any more than you are. But I have been meeting with our Pentagon folks and our national security people, as you have with ours and yours. And as you know, and I need not tell you, the perception around the world and in parts of Afghanistan, I believe, is that things aren't going well in terms of the fight against the Taliban. This is President Biden speaking. He continued, and there's a need, whether it's true or not, there's a need to project a different picture. Of course, Ghani would later flee the country. According to the Russian embassy, he took off in a helicopter and four cars with a fortune in cash. One Afghan diplomat accused him of looting $169 million dollars from the suffering, war-torn country. Over the denials of Ashraf Ghani about taking the money, the Taliban is now demanding he return the alleged stolen funds. One Taliban spokesperson put it this way, he, Ghani, made the mistake of abandoning the government. This is what resulted in the sudden vacuum, plundering and shooting and killing killing not just Afghan people, but 13 Americans. On Tuesday, our proud National Security Advisor, Mr. Jake Sullivan, he hinted, listen to this, this is where the the horror in this whole thing is being revealed. In front of the American press, in front of the American people, Jake Sullivan hinted that economic aid, more specifically, Afghanistan government funds frozen by the U.S. government could be on the table as leverage to ensure hundreds of American citizens get home safely. Here's exactly what Jake Sullivan said, quote, when it comes to our economic and development assistance relationship with the Taliban, that will be about the Taliban's actions. It will be about whether they follow through on their commitments, their commitments to the safe passage for Americans and Afghan allies, their commitments to not allow Afghanistan to be a base from which terrorists can attack the U.S. or any other country, their commitments with respect to upholding their international obligations. It's going to be up to them, Sullivan said, and we will wait and see by their actions how we end up responding Listen to these words in terms of the economic and development assistance. In terms of the economic and development assistance. Well, already in the background is Biden's abandonment of an estimated 65 to $85 billion in military hardware 
that is now in the hands of the Taliban, as well as, came out overnight, folks, a massive number of pallets, and those pallets are holding U.S. dollars. Don't forget history, folks. Remember this? The first Trump impeachment trial turned on the transcript of a phone call that then-President Donald Trump made to the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. The dispute and what resulted in an impeachment trial was over whether Trump offered a quid pro quo in exchange for information on Joe Biden's son, Hunter, who had inexplicably obtained a lucrative deal with a Ukrainian gas company. No such quid pro quo was proven in the first of two impeachment trials. Impeachment number one failed, impeachment number two failed. And the whistleblower in impeachment number one, he lied about who he was, his identity during the impeachment trial hearing. The Biden phone call transcript is much more damning than was that Ukrainian and Trump call. It's a clear offer to deceive the American public and the international community about the threat of the Taliban. The false security of the country was the basis for the Biden military withdrawal after two decades of fighting. In other words, if Biden had not gotten Ghani, the former president, to stay quiet about how bad it was as the Taliban went city to city, province to province, slaughtering people, taking over the country on a march to the capital, to Kabul. Lest we forget, folks, Biden's game with the former Afghan president resulted in the deaths of 12 U.S. Marines and one U.S. Navy sailor along with approximately 200 Afghans who just happened to be caught up in the Biden-instigated insanity at the Abbey Gate at the Kabul airport. And, oh, by the way, they were all blown up, all of them, using explosives that Biden's military left for the Taliban. How do you know that, Dan? Any explosive that's used in any kind of bomb or any kind of explosive advice anywhere on, on Earth. They all leave a fingerprint, and chemical tracing can come up with the exact contents of the explosives, the type of explosives. They can even tell you exactly not only the country in which it came from, but which factory that produces the elements for explosives in that country produced it for that particular explosive device. That process happened regarding the bombs that were used by that suicide bomber, those two suicide bombers. And they came out of the cachet of explosives that were led at Bagram Air Force Base when we pulled out, our military pulled out of that air base and let the Taliban have it. Biden's hands are bloody in two ways. His deal with Ghani resulted in a pullback of Afghani forces while the Taliban was sweeping across the nation, province by province, city by city, and leaving dead Afghan citizens 
and who knows how many Afghan soldiers, while Ghani and Biden looked on and purposely hid the facts of those atrocities from the citizens of both Afghanistan and the U.S., and for that matter, the rest of the world. What decisions if leaders were armed with the facts? What leaders? I'm talking about Afghan leaders and U.S. leaders. What decisions would they have made if they had the facts of the Taliban slaughtering thousands and those Americans in the Biden-Ghani deal, if they knew all of that? You think it would have made difference about some timing, the defense of the Kabul airport, how we would have approached it, how we would have handled it on the ground, how many people would have been sent, and then about the extraction of hundreds of American citizens, many of who are still hiding from the Taliban. And they have the promise of President Biden. They heard it on ABC early last week. We will leave no American behind, and our military will not leave until all Americans are safe. Folks, Joe Biden is an empty suit. He's a hollow man, an insensitive bureaucrat. He showed his real self at that ceremony at Dover Air Base when those 13 dead American service members were brought back home. How did he show his true self? 11 times during the ceremony, 11 times, he looked down at his watch on his left arm. And on the first day when that obvious question was popped out by the media, you know what the story was they floated around? Joe has a rosary on his wrist to his dead son, Bo. But the problem is the rosary's on Joe's right wrist. And very plainly, when he looked down those 11 times, he was looking down at his watch on his left hand. Reports from the family members of those 13 who decided to meet privately with the president, only a few chose to do that, by the way. The ones that did related how cold and unsympathetic was Biden. Each told the story that Biden repeated his story regarding the feelings of loss that he has for his son, Bo. Bo wasn't killed in combat. Bo wasn't sent to his death by a commander-in-chief. Bo died at the hands of cancer. No American holds any malice at Biden for grieving for his dead son. Folks, parents are never supposed to bury their kids. But that day at Dover, it was not to be about Bo Biden and certainly not about Joe Biden. But Joe showed his true colors, proved to the nation and the world that everything in his life as president is about Joe and his life. There's a chorus of Republicans now calling for President Biden to resign or to be impeached. Folks, he's not going to be impeached. There's no way it can happen. The House is controlled by Nancy Pelosi. The Senate is controlled by Chuck Schumer. Resignation is a possibility. But for that to ever happen, and by the way, he should resign. He should move out of the White House today very quietly, go back to Delaware and do his thing there. In fact, Jill could keep him in the basement if she if she redesigned it to look like a mini 
Oval Office, he probably wouldn't even understand he wasn't at the White House. He should resign. But that would take a man of substance, somebody of moral character, empathy, and honesty. And I think based upon not a personal opinion by just hypothetically coming up with one, but just watching and listening to him and everything he's done and said through his 40-plus year career in D.C., I don't think Biden has a simple, single one of those things, substance, moral character, empathy, or honesty. So let's look ahead for a second. If the president somehow makes it past the 2022 midterms, I think if that happens, both impeachment and resignation very well may be options that are on the table. Folks, after all, colluding with a foreign leader to make oneself look credible in the eyes of the U.S. and using the lives of thousands of Afghan citizens, along with 13 U.S. military members that died needlessly and senselessly on your watch and from your specific actions, and an untold number of other Americans, by the way, who still remain stranded in Afghanistan, certainly is grounds for impeachment on numerous grounds. After going back and reading this story and thinking it through, I actually came back and edited the end of it. I added this, I'm confident Joe won't resign. He's too arrogant. And he's too pride-filled. No matter his mental and or physical status, he's too proud to ever step down from what surely will be one of, if not the, worst presidencies in American history. I'm not certain Joe is mentally capable to even discern these facts. By the way, if you do or don't believe this story, Embedded in the article, the front page article today, about this. There's a hyperlink, and it says the word transcript. Click on it and read the phone call contents for yourself. Don't believe us. As we always say, prove something before you take action on it. Make a determination based on facts. Donald Trump was impeached twice for way less than this. Nobody died because of Donald Trump's telephone conversation with Zelensky, the former president of the Ukraine. Nobody. And he didn't ask a foreign leader to keep quiet and to hide the truth. That's exactly what Joe did with former Afghan president Ghani. How bad is it, Dan? <laughs> it's bad, folks. It's bad. And sadly, I, I, I mean, if you look at the horizon in government, look at what's happening in D.C., look at what's on the table, look at the money, the bills, the massive bills that have already been passed and the ones that are pending now. We're going to get into one of them later in the show today, the details. It's one that the Senate passed, a spending bill. It's unbelievable. It's, un, it's unconscionable that our nation is in the state that it's in, and we're in it directly because of the leadership in America. 
Details up next. Don't go anywhere. Not just political, not just lifestyle, but always relevant. Real truth, real news. TNN, the Truth News Network. Welcome to Burger King. Can I take your order, please? I'm here for the most wanted. Sorry, sir. Can you repeat that? The gang known as the Western Whopper. Ah, you mean our new Texas barbecue beef bacon and sweet Carolina Whoppers, right? Yes, I need them now. Try the new Texas barbecue beef bacon or our tasty honey mustard sauce on our sweet Carolina Whoppers at your nearest BK today. Burger King, have it your way. How to improve your dining room by the Home Depot. New wood floors, new paint on the walls. Sure, you know us for that. But how about a new dining room table, matching chairs, bar stools? How about free and flexible delivery with easy online returns? Now you can explore decor in a whole new way. Save now on furniture. Everything for your home. Everything from homedepot.com. How doers get more done. U.S. only valid through September 7th. Limitations apply. Drinking water is essential to your health. That's why you need to drink plenty of water to keep you hydrated throughout the day. Unlike power drinks or soft drinks, water is truly the only drink that can quench your thirst. It's an easy, refreshing way to keep your body healthy and strong. Freshen up today with a brisk, cool bottle of water. Clarity of thought. Clarity of vision, clarity of message. Truthnewsnet.org. Again, Dan Newman. Just a little P.S. on the Afghanistan-Biden-Ghani telephone conversations. In one of those conversations, Biden went on and had some other things to say. He said this, I need not tell you the perception around the world and in parts of Afghanistan, I believe, is that things are not going well in terms of the fight against the Taliban. And there is a need, whether it's true or not, there's a need to project a different picture. Well, that specific exchange has fueled a bunch of accusations that Biden misled us all about Afghanistan's stability, and he had to be doing it in order to follow through with the military withdrawal and the fact that it was going to be easy. He promised us all that Taliban... They're not going to be a big deal. The Afghan army is ready, prepared, armed. We trained them. They have plenty of soldiers, and they're going to take care of it. Of course, none of that was the truth, and he knew it, and President Ghani of Afghanistan knew it, and nobody said a thing. Well, looking back at 2019, 2019, there was a tweet that came out from a CNN contributor. I wonder who that was. Guess who it was? Jen Psaki, Biden's White House press secretary. And her tweet in 2019 from CNN, the position she was in at the time, it called for transparency in the early week of then-President Trump's Ukraine scandal that ultimately resulted in his impeachment. We talked about that a minute ago. Here's what she said. This is Jen Psaki, 2019. It's not just the call transcript. The whistleblower complaint would likely have more details. We need both and not just the call. 
Well, some critics appeared to hail Saki's call for transparency, while others called her out and called her having an apparent double standard. 100% agree. That came from Spectator contributor Stephen Miller. He reacted, adding, We'll be weird if journos decide to just ignore this one. But now you refuse to answer question on Biden's call with Ghani. What happened to the promise that this administration will be about truth and transparency? That was political strategist V.F. Castro talking to Jen Psaki. Psaki didn't respond, obviously, and hasn't. At the White House press briefing yesterday, Psaki dodged every question about Biden's phone call with Ghani. Well, I'm not going to get into private diplomatic conversations or leaked transcripts of phone calls, she said, which is exactly what she did in 2019. But what I can reiterate for you is that we have stated many times that no one anticipated that the Taliban would be able to take over the country as quickly as they did or that Afghan national security forces would fold as quickly as they did. So even the content of the reporting is consistent with what we've said many times publicly. I'll also note, she added, something the president said in this press conference around the same time of this reported phone call. The Afghan government and leadership has to come together. They clearly have the capacity to sustain the government in place. The question is, will they generate the kind of cohesion to do it? Ah, they didn't mention or talk about the second phone call in that one, did they? That's the one where both Biden and Ghani admitted they were in deep doo-doo and they had to play the cover game. You know, that everyday thing that's normal. It's been normalized for years in Washington, D.C. Hide and deflect. Lie and deflect. Don't ever get involved in that truth thing. If you do, you're going to destroy everything that we built in Washington, which is... There's a big monster up here that they don't even know is a monster. And we control the monster. (laughs) Hi. It's just unbelievable that this stuff, they do it over and over and over again. I mean, they do it incessantly. They normalized it. It's just like getting up in the morning and grabbing a cup of coffee. You know, this has nothing. It does have something to do with this, but it's not directly related. One of the the most difficult problems a person who is a habitual liar, what they have is keeping up with what lies they've told to whom. And so when you tell a lie, you got to go back later. If it's somebody you interact with regularly, you got to remember exactly what you told them last time, how you, uh, preface the lie and you got to make sure that you don't say something that is counter to the lie you told them the first time. And when you do it habitually over and over and over again, it's hard to remember what you told the first time and the second time and the third time and who you told those lies to. In Washington, folks, people in government, they talk and meet with, talk to and meet with hundreds and hundreds of people every week. And the only way to never have to deal with that is to tell the truth. What a novel idea. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh, you just can't make this stuff up, folks. This is actually happening in our nation. In our nation. Do you know who Representative Brian Nast is? <laughs> He's obviously a conservative, a Republican in Congress, and he just, he had enough. He had enough yesterday, and on the floor of the House, he grabbed the microphone and he had a few things to say about the lion Biden and the folks that work for him. As every veteran will tell you, the most important thing you bring into battle is why. The why for this battle that we're talking about today, that, that Representative Gallagher just spoke about, is very simple. To protect lives, to save Americans, and very pointedly this. Every American, every one of us in this room, everybody in government is being lied to. When they send somebody out to the podium, when they send Blinken out to the podium, it's to lie to the American people. Flat out. When he says the terrorists promise that they won't let other terrorists in, that's an example of him lying to the American people. When they send somebody else out from the administration to talk about what's going to happen with the recognition uh, of the Taliban or other terrorist groups, they're sending somebody out to lie to the American people. When they send somebody out to talk about the, the U.S. arms that will be used against our military, other militaries, and civilians across the globe, they're sending somebody out to lie to the American people. That is why what Representative Gallagher and every veteran up here and every member of our body is acknowledging these lies can't be the way forward. They have to come to an end immediately, and this has to be the moment that they are accounted for. In real life, folks, this is where we are right now today. Across the board, every press briefing, every press statement, every news report that comes out, what Americans have got to do, we've just got to reconcile in our lives. This is the process, the only one that could possibly work and give us real information more times than not is to automatically think before, even before somebody opens a microphone to give us a report and answer a question, they're going to lie. And so if your preface is every one of these is going to be a lie, you don't trust it. So then you're forced to go find out if what they said was true. I know it's a hard thing and it, and, and, and it would just eat up tons of resources and time but unless and until we take that approach, they're going to continue to shovel this crap into the minds of Americans and others around the world in perpetuity. They'll never stop. The only way it's going to stop, it will never stop if we wait on them to do it. We're just going to have to run them out of town. I know. I know. I understand, folks. Doing so is a monumental task, but the process to do that is in our hands as American citizens, as American voters. We can do it. Well, look what they did in November of 2020. They stole that election. Honestly, we don't know that, but I am very confident that's what happened. And so, so many people, I hear it every day, when the subject comes up, there's nothing we can do. They control everything. They control the Justice Department from top to bottom. 
They have so much influence in state governments and local governments because they flood states and cities with taxpayer money, and everybody's afraid to stand up to them because they'll lose the gravy train that they have now. If we accept that philosophy and those answers for our problems, yeah, you're right, it'll never get fixed. But Americans just have to simply stand up, not necessarily together. We individually have got to make a decision. We're going to stand up against the tyranny, and this is tyranny. Make no mistake, it is tyranny. They despise a representative republic version of the law and governing. They despise it. They want it gone. They despise the U.S. Constitution, though they tell us again and again and again they they support it, and they take oaths to protect and defend the Constitution and the rule of law. But every day, all of their actions say exactly the opposite. So when are we going to awaken as Americans and stand up and scream loud, consistently, every day, it's not acceptable, we're not going to let it happen anymore. You look around the nation, folks. Look state to state around the nations. I was I was asked this morning a question by a good friend of mine. I've spent a considerable amount of time in, in and out of New York City, number of years on business. I've been there several times with my wife and family in pleasure. And the, the question was asked this morning of me. I asked him if he'd ever been to Manhattan. We were talking about the flooding that's going on up there as a, the remnants of Hurricane Ida that tore up the bottom of our state, Louisiana, made it all the way up into New Jersey and into Manhattan. I mean, Bronx and Brooklyn flooded. I mean, subways, houses. It's a horrible situation. In Louisiana, we're kind of desensitized to it in many ways because it happens over and over again because of hurricanes that come ashore. All that being said, he asked me, what do they think about people in the South? What do they think about it? And I just said they think we're rednecks. They think we're stupid. And that's the fundamental perspective they've all adopted, not all, but most have adopted about us. So whenever we say anything, their analysis of the content of what we say is based upon the opinion, their opinion of who we are. But if you take a gander state by state around the nation and you look at what's going on in their governments within their states and among their people, look at the states that are dominated by Democrats and far-left governing. Look at the state they're in. Look at the social substance of what is going on in society in the societies in each of these states. I'm talking about Washington. I'm not talking about necessarily New York and California, but Washington State, Oregon, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and many others. Look at what's happening there. There is a commonality, a common thread that runs through each and every one of them. They're all in mass disarray. Lawlessness is running rampant and getting worse every day in the big cities. Most of those big cities are in the states I just mentioned. But then when you look in states like, um, here we go again, I'm talking about the South and Southerners. Look at Florida. Look at Texas. 
Look at states like that, where the American people chose leaders in each of those states, those state citizens and voters chose leaders that believed in the rule of law. They believe in the United States Constitution. They believe in the enforcement of laws that are made by the U.S. Congress and then at the state level by their legislatures and then locally by the municipalities and the governing authorities there. They believe in that. That's an acceptance level where their opinions start, not end. They believe in the rule of law. In those big states that I mentioned where all of the horrors are perpetrated in every segment of society from top to bottom, every section, it all ends and begins at the leadership and what the leadership embraces for life in their states and what is expected and whether they are not or they will enforce the rule of law and trust the people that live in their states to create, through their representatives and legislatures, to create laws that are better for the people of those states. That's exactly why our forefathers very carefully crafted and put in the Constitution that the federal government has no rights, no authorities that are not specifically given to them by the people. And it used to be that way. We just took it for granted. They answered to us, state by state, American citizen by American citizen. They worked for us. They turned the tides. They've shifted the power and authority thing. They've turned it upside down, and we let them do it. We let them do it. Let's get back to Afghanistan for just another couple of minutes. Let's get back to that $85 billion. That's one estimate of the military equipment, the value that we just walked out and let the Afghans have. And not the Afghans. Unfortunately, it's the Taliban and other terrorist organizations. Oliver North, Colonel Oliver North, very well-educated member of the military Here's what he said. The Biden administration left behind some of the most sophisticated weapons and equipment we've ever made for our military. It's going to be reverse engineered in China, his prediction. It's going to be reverse engineered in Russia, his prediction. It'll be used against us all around the world. He predicted that the Taliban, ISIS, and Haqqani network would collectively become the best armed criminal enterprise in the history of mankind. Why? Because Biden's Pentagon abandoned military equipment, vehicles, and weaponry in Afghanistan. North said, what's happening to a lot of abandoned equipment is that they're being dragged across the border in boxes and on trucks. And HET is a heavy equipment transporter. When we offload a tank, an M1 tank, it weighs 70 tons off a ship and set it down on the pier, it's loaded on an HET and transported to where it's going to fight because you don't want to wear out the treads, you don't want to burn up more fuel than you need to. 
Heavy equipment transporters have been used to transport two M1 tanks already from Afghanistan into Pakistan, he said. They're going to be heading to the port where they'll be loaded aboard a ship and taken to communist China for exploitation. That's what's happening to anywhere between five and ten of every piece of equipment. North said, by the way, the Taliban are getting rich on this. They're selling them to the Chinese and the Russian governments. Nobody thought about that. Or, yeah, I'm sure somebody thought about it, but nobody nobody informed a decision maker at the top. You know who that might be. Uh, the President, Joe Biden, this was what's going to happen. We know it happens all the time. Remember when during the Biden-Obama administration, and I guess technically I'm supposed to flip-flop that, the Obama-Biden administration, remember when we had that amazing trip into Pakistan with our Navy SEALs and they went in there and killed Osama bin Laden. There were two helicopters involved in that and one of them crashed. It was a very, very intricate, very detailed helicopter that crashed. And of course, when that happens universally, what we always do is we destroy the equipment that's left so that what we're dealing with right now and will be, it looks like going forward, foreign countries, our enemies, grab it and they take it and turn it over to their military establishment to figure out exactly how it's made and what's in it and then they duplicate it. Who better on planet Earth to do that than the Chinese government? They came and got that helicopter that crashed on the raid on bin Laden. Nobody talks about this, but they got it from the Pakistani people. They now know how we do our helicopter development. Wow. Nobody thinks about the downside of all this stuff. So where's the House Speaker been? Have you heard from her lately? Well, of course, she came out immediately and she applauded Biden for his leadership in exiting the 20-year war in Afghanistan. She held the evacuation that she called the largest and most successful airlift in U.S. history. I wonder what those Taliban nationals, if they agreed with Nancy Pelosi, you know, those ones that they were dangling by a rope 20 or 30 feet below a flying U.S. Black Hawk helicopter over cities in Afghanistan, not just Kabul, but elsewhere. Those were Afghan uh, national folks, many of them Afghan soldiers. Some of them worked side by side with us. And to make a point, Taliban would take our Black Hawk helicopters. They're flying over these cities and throwing these men out, snapping their necks, but leaving them dangling while they fly around, showing people below, you better toe the line or this will happen to you. Pelosi said, today, America and the world observe a milestone of solemnity, the end of the 20-year war in Afghanistan. I commend the president for his steadfast leadership in ending a forever war. Too many men and women in uniform and their families have had to bear the burden of this conflict. As we honor the heroism of the fallen, we salute each member of our military, intelligence, and diplomatic communities who conducted this evacuation, which is the largest and most successful 
airlift in U.S. history. On Tuesday, Pelosi made those remarks after Biden defended his decision on the U.S. withdrawal. No nation has ever done anything like it at all in our history, he said. Only the U.S. had the capacity and the will and the ability to do it. So, after hundreds of American citizens are left stranded in the country, the Biden administration has been criticized for mishandling the evacuation. I couldn't believe he did it, but yesterday, excuse me, day before yesterday, Biden actually admitted he was leaving 10% of Americans. 90% of Americans in Afghanistan who wanted to leave were able to, he said. And for those remaining Americans, there is no deadline. We remain committed to get them out if they want to come out. That, of course, is in the shadow of him committing uh, on ABC News last week that the military was going to stay, going to remain, until every American gets out. So you just heard that flowery and solemn thing that Nancy Pelosi had to say about it. You remember? Too many men and women in uniform and their families have had to bear the burden of this conflict, she said. So guess what happened yesterday? Yesterday, House Republicans tried to get on the floor of the House of Representatives and they wanted to simply read the names of the fallen U.S. service members publicly. But guess what happened? Pelosi wouldn't let it happen. She has unilateral authority for everything that happens on the floor of the House of Representatives. And what she says goes. And she didn't want those names mentioned. You know why, folks? This is just another page in their playbook. If they can, anytime there's a national or international disaster or debacle that happens that makes anybody affiliated with their side of government look bad, they want to, as quickly as possible, move on. In other words, don't stop and reflect on what happened. Don't honor those 13 service members who lost their lives. They're not worthy of even having their names read from the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. Why couldn't they do that? Well, they could have, but she's ready to move on to the next thing. She wants, as does every Democrat, wants Americans to forget about what happened because it happened on their watch. So it's interesting. Have you have you have you seen the polls? Have you heard anything about the polls? I mean, we stay on top of them every day. Rasmussen is probably, without question, uh, the most reliable polling agency, not just in the United States but in the world. So I, while we're talking, I just pulled it up here to see the latest on the polls. Let's see. Here's one. Uh, they change them every day. I've got to sign in. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Voters have, this is their story today. Voters have turned sharply against President Biden on his handling of the Afghanistan withdrawal. Most believe that hundreds of Americans will be left behind. A new Rasmussen reports national telephone and online survey finds 30% of likely U.S. voters rate the Biden administration's handling of the current situation in Afghanistan good or excellent. 
53% rate it poor. 52% of voters say Biden's determination to withdraw all U.S. military forces is a bad decision. Just 34% think it's a good decision. 51% believe more than 100 American civilians will be left behind and will never get out. It's pretty serious stuff. And then what about, let's look at the um, approval, job approval things. Let's look at this morning. 42% approve of the president overall. 42%. 56% disapprove. 56%. Now, folks, just to put this in the context of timing, the calendar, Biden's down, eh, 42, 50. He's, he's down 13% in just the last month and a half. All because of Afghanistan. Now you understand why Pelosi and company, they don't want any more bad stuff than absolutely has to come out about Afghanistan. They don't want it out there because there is nothing in it. It doesn't matter how much they applaud Biden for what he did. There's nothing in it that's good. And we're not finished yet, folks. I promise you, I promise you, those economic things that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was talking about that are under consideration, it's money. It's money. Biden is actually going to allow the Taliban to blackmail the United States of America, and he's going to use those Americans that because of Biden and the decisions and choices he made and pushed downstream, to his Secretary of Defense and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the military leaders, even CENTCOM, the leader. He's pushed it down and said, get out of there, get out of there before all of our people get slaughtered and overrun. It'll be interesting to see how this president will respond. He's pretty open to, in the past to blackmail all that cash that went to Iran. There are a bunch of theories out there about what it was about. And most think, very few people think that it actually had to do with that Iran deal, the nuclear deal. There's something else out there. And many Americans, many people in the know, many people in government feel like it was blackmail. Iran was blackmailing Barack Obama, and I think it had to do the actual circumstances of Osama bin Laden. That's, I'm going to stop there. Many feel like that's the case. And of course, if you're a terrorist, terrorists have a lot of unanimity. They speak to each other. Iran obviously funds and is the biggest funder of terrorist actions around the globe. Any terrorist knows what's going on in Iran. And the Taliban, whatever they did in Iran, the Taliban know about it. They're going to try to do the same thing to this president that they did to him once before as vice president, whatever that is. An anonymous official. This is interesting. Somebody in Joe Biden's administration, anonymous, came forward 
but anonymously, and said this, I am absolutely appalled and literally horrified we left Americans there. It was a hostage rescue of thousands of Americans in the guise of a non-combatant evacuation operation, and we have failed that no-fail mission. So we know that's going on behind the scenes. How deep does that go? How many people feel that way? Let me tell you who feels that way probably more than anybody else. Joe Biden. Joe Biden. He has a history of being sympathetic, of of being empathetic to people. And he's always had a way to make people feel that he really is sincere about that until being out on the tarmac at Dover when those 13 service members' bodies were returned. And he looked at his watch 11 different times. And then talked to some of these families, and as we told you early in the show, they reported that he was not sympathetic at all. And that he didn't want to talk about their lost loved ones. He wanted to talk about his son, Bo, who lost a battle, but not in military action. He lost a battle to cancer. And I think Biden is really feeling bad right now about his either decisions or lack of decisions that he made. And I think he's sensitive to the fact that these people got killed. I think he is. I give my word with all of my heart. And? And if if there's American citizens left, we're going to stay till we get them all out. I give my word with all of my heart. I give my word with all of my heart. That was yesterday, and you heard the voice in which he he said that. He gave his word, folks, and then he broke his word. There's no other way to put it, and Americans died, and Afghanis died directly because of our president, President Joe Biden. It seems like every summer starts with a song. Maybe it's one we heard on the radio during our morning drive. Or maybe it was playing in the cafe we ducked into for lunch. Wherever they catch us, certain songs seem to take us away. Songs of waves and sand, of forests and hillsides, of growing up and growing old. Songs that get in our heads and make us smile as we hum them to ourselves. Songs of the sun coming up and the ragtop going down, of friends we just met and the ones we'll have for life. Songs that define the moments, like the ones we find in Michigan, where we take our someday list and start to check things off. A day spent gliding on a sailboat, floating on a pontoon, and climbing over that next hill. A rhythm that takes us somewhere better, somewhere like Pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. I'm a Verizon engineer, and today we're turning on 5G across the country, including right here in New York City. With the coverage of 5G nationwide and in more and more cities, the unprecedented performance of ultra-wideband. It will change your phone and how businesses do everything. I'm proud because we didn't build it the easy way. We built it right. 
This is the 5G America's been waiting for. Only from Verizon. 5G Ultra Wideband available only in parts of select cities. 5G Nationwide available in 1,800 plus cities. You get a whole lot of something with Farmer's Policy Perks. So much, I'm going to have to speed things up. You can get the claim-free discount, which gives you money off your homeowner's policy if you've been claim-free for three consecutive years. Also applies for three successive years, three years straight, and what's known to insurance fans as the claim-free three-peat. Get a whole lot of something with Farmer's Policy Perks. Start with a quote by calling 1-800-FARMERS. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Now for the legal something. Not available in every state. Only available with select farmers' branded policies subject to terms and conditions underwritten by Farmer's Truck or Fire Insurance Exchanges or Affiliate. One more story. It relates loosely to Afghanistan. It relates to every war we've been involved in, every skirmish. Have you ever wondered what 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 are the costs for that? Obviously, none of it's cheap. Well, we're about to celebrate the 20th anniversary of 9/11, and somebody decided we need to get to the bottom of the massive cost of all our wars, specifically Afghanistan and Iraq and in other theaters in both dollars and in lost lives. So Brown University, that's exactly what they did. Uh, They created a uh, division. Maybe it's a class or a division of, of teaching called the Cost of War. It's a project. And it reveals the cost since September 11th of 2001 for every war. And in dollars, folks, the cost exceeds $8 trillion dollars. And the wars since 2001 have directly killed an estimated between 897,000 and 929,000 people. This cost of war project at Brown, it was initiated back in, uh, let's see, when did they do it? It was launched in 2010, so it's been around for a while. It's housed at Brown's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs, and they released the latest updates on this massive database they have yesterday. The Boston Globe reported the $8 trillion number includes the cost of veterans' care through 2050, which is trillions higher than researchers previously estimated. Think about that. $8 trillion, and it includes the cost of veterans' care through 2050. The budgetary and human cost of wars after the September 11th attacks that killed nearly 3,000 people in New York, Pennsylvania, and D.C. Here's what they said. Of the approximate $8 trillion estimated cost of the wars, $2.3 trillion can be attributed to the war zones in Afghanistan and Pakistan, a little over $2 trillion to the war zones in Iraq and Syria, and $355 billion was attributed to other war zones. The total also includes $1.1 trillion of related spending by Homeland Security and an estimated $2.2 trillion earmarked for future veterans' care, including future medical care and disability payments over the next decades. Now, what don't they include? They don't include money spent on humanitarian assistance and aid for economic development in Afghanistan and Iraq, future cost of interest interest that we have to pay on money we're borrowing to pay for wars after 2023, or state and local spending for counterterrorism and services for post-September 11 
veterans. The project said that cost to the U.S. would have been even much, much higher if not for the help and the spending of our allies that include Australia, Britain, Canada, Denmark, Italy, the Netherlands, Romania even, Germany, and France. The lack of detailed expenses from the federal government was that was the impetus for this project to be initiated. In March, the Defense Department released its most recent estimate that emergency and overseas contingency operations spending for wars in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan cost a total of $1.6 trillion, or $8,094 per taxpayer through fiscal year 2020. But those amounts totally exclude non-Defense Department classified programs. And there's a bunch of those, and they can't give us the numbers on it because they don't want us to know about them. Don't let anybody tell you war is not expensive, and not just in dollars and cents, but in the lives of Americans. And of course, not just Americans, especially when they're fought on foreign soil. People there pay the price right along with us. Oh, by the way, the California family that was stranded over in Afghanistan, they're out of El Cajon, California. They're still there. The whole family can't get out. They're American citizens. And regardless of Joe Biden's promise to every American citizen, our military did not stay until every citizen gets out. What else is happening? What else is a big deal? Well, there's a lot of other big deals. Did you hear the Supreme Court? We actually mentioned it here yesterday. They handed down a decision to have Texas adopt its abortion ban as soon as September 1st, despite calls from abortion providers and many folks in D.C. to block it. The law out of Texas is titled Senate Bill 8. What it does, it targets abortions when the embryo has shown a heartbeat or typically six weeks into the pregnancy with medical emergency that is put in there being the only exception. It was signed into law in May. Why haven't we heard about it since then? Well, people sued and they got an emergency suit in front of the Supreme Court that the SCOTUS weighed in on and just sent it back to the state of Texas. So this means, this bill means, it's a law now, Citizens are granted the power to enforce the ban that's included in the law instead of having local governments do it. Listen to this. It allows private individuals to legally challenge anybody who assists a woman in getting an abortion, and it will earn them at least $10,000 in damages per case. In other words, whistleblowers. So a group of abortion providers naturally filed that lawsuit against the ban back in July. And that led to an emergency request to the Supreme Court for it to be blocked. They argued that the Texas regulations will immediately and catastrophically restrict abortion access for 85% of patients and cause numerous clinics across the state to close. This group that filed this case is said to be among the most restrictive pro-life law to be taking effect in U.S., 
before Texas, 12 other states have already passed legislation prohibiting abortion in the first trimester, but none of them has taken effect due to challenges in court. Some critics said despite Texas's will to protect innocent lives, the restrictive law may only stop safe abortions as people are going to try to find ways around it. Patients will have to travel out of state in the middle of a pandemic, oh my gosh, to receive constitutionally guaranteed health care. Many will not have the means to do so. That comes from Nancy Northrup, president and CEO of the Centers for Reproductive Rights. When Governor Abbott signed a bill into law, he said this, Our Creator endowed us with the right to life, and yet millions of children lose their right to life every year because of abortion, noting that it ensures that the life of every unborn child who has a heartbeat will be saved from the ravages of abortion. According to one paper in Texas before Senate Bill 8, most abortions after 20 weeks are outlawed and bill abortion at 10 weeks into the pregnancy is also banned. Ultrasounds got to be performed on the patient 24 hours before one of these abortions. She must be informed about medical risk, abortion alternatives, and help accessible to individuals who want to keep their pregnancy. According to state records, 56,000-plus abortions were performed on Texas residents in 2019, the majority of those in the first trimester. The furor of this, I mean, it is... I never thought it would be what it is. I mean, it is atrocious. And some of the approaches that these skeptics are taking are just unconscionable. You remember Shepard Smith, longtime afternoon guy on Fox News. And about a, a year after he came out as being gay and he turned hard left on air, he was kind of pressured to move out of Fox News not because they were trying to get rid of him, because he was getting constant pushback, not from those he worked with, but for a lot of people that were telling him face-to-face, you work for Fox News. How could you, how could you confirm and tout being gay? That's kind of an oxymoron. Fox News is a conservative outlet. He just couldn't take it anymore, and he left. Well, he showed back up at CNBC. Yesterday, he weighed in on this Texas abortion law. Listen to this. $10,000, that's how much money people in Texas can now win in court by successfully suing anyone who helps a woman get an abortion after six weeks. That would include a doctor who performs it, a person who helps pay for it, even someone who drives a woman to an abortion clinic. That is all now legal in Texas. There are no exceptions under this new law for rape or incest, the only exceptions for medical emergencies. Those who support the law declared today a historic and hopeful day. They see it as protecting the lives of unborn children. For those who oppose it, it they denounced it as a bounty, enabling private citizens to file lawsuits, leaving enforcement to private citizens instead of officials. Advocates of abortion rights say it effectively bans abortions in Texas, arguing that women who don't even pregnant in six weeks. They all see it as an assault on Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion nationwide in 1973. The Texas law went into effect last midnight. 
Abortion clinics asked the Supreme Court to step in and block with the court. Now, now, lawyer, co-founder of the SCOTUS blog and reporter covering the Supreme Court. Amy, thanks so much. When people claim this effectively overturned Roe v. Wade in Texas, are they right or wrong? So it's hard to say. It's a, I think it's a little bit it's a little bit complicated. You know, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Case, which is a 1992 case, say that a woman has a right to obtain an abortion to the point at which a fetus becomes viable until it can live on its own outside the womb, and that generally occurs at around 24 weeks. So. Now in Texas, you can't get an abortion at once there's a doctor can hear a fetal heartbeat at six weeks. So it in Texas, there's, there's no longer the right to an abortion after six weeks. If, if you could explain the design of this law for us, did did Texas officials effectively give themselves a kind of shield by leaving the enforcement up to the people? This law was designed to make it harder to challenge before it went into effect. So the question is not just whether it's constitutional, but who can challenge it. So as you mentioned in the introduction, you know, normally state officials would enforce a law like this, and that's the case in other states that have similar heartbeat laws, but Texas gave private citizens the right to enforce the laws. And so what the state is arguing in the Supreme Court, which hasn't yet ruled on the request to, to block the law from going into effect, is that we don't enforce the laws. And so you could you can't really do anything as to us. We're the, not the people to sue that what the, the challengers who are a group of abortion providers need to do is wait for the law to go into an, into effect. And if they're sued, they can claim as a defense that the law is unconstitutional. Amy, the, the idea that you can't that you have to wait for the law to go into effect is a, is a feature, not a bug, from Texas's perspective. Got it. I didn't mean to interrupt. I apologize. One last okay. question. The, the Supreme Court is set to hear arguments in this term on a law in Mississippi that bans most abortions after 15 weeks. That's seen as a chance to rule on Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade. How do you see that one playing out? Sure, I think everyone is watching um, you know, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Certainly since the, the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, President Donald Trump, the former president, had promised to put justices on who would overrule Roe versus Wade, and he put three justices on the court. And so, you know, I think that, that most people think there is a good chance that the Supreme Court could either overrule Roe versus Wade or, you know, make it much easier for states to impose laws that will make it harder to for women to obtain abortions. The question is really, will they take the step of overruling Roe versus Wade? But, but it's very possible that they could. We're, we'll have to wait and see. Um, you know, what they do with this request to block the Texas law could tell us a lot about what they could do um, when they finally get the Mississippi case in front of them. Uh, they're, they're likely to hear oral argument in that case in December and then Got issue it. a decision sometime. There's a couple of things here that are noteworthy I want to point out. First of all, two things. One is Roe v. Wade, if it's overturned, folks, overturning Roe v. Wade does not make abortions illegal in the United States. The abortionists like to claim that, but it will not. What will happen if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned is it will be taken away from the federal government to ascertain any of the rules regarding abortions and give them 
right back to the states. And so every state can determine within its own borders what is abortion and if and when abortions are allowed by law. The abortionists can't stand that. They want to fill the blogosphere, the news sphere, with information, disinformation that is not factual. And they, they understand their supporters, in large part, they just take as fact everything these people say about the law. Listen to what Adam Schiff tweeted last night about this. Listen closely to what he said. When Republicans stole a Supreme Court seat from the American people, they did it for exactly this purpose, to erase a woman's right to choose. And early this morning at 12.01 a.m., Texas did just that. This cannot stand. Did you hear what he said in there? When Republicans stole a Supreme Court seat. They did it for exactly this purpose, to erase a woman's right to choose. First of all, Adam Schiff, Shepard Smith, you just heard in that news clip from CNBC where he works, they're all making these broad allegations and they don't even couch them They make them as, this is fact. You can't counter this. This is the way it is. And very few people think opposite of that or actually ask any questions. Roe v. Wade is basically an opinion about a woman having rights for her own health care. It doesn't even mention abortion. It doesn't even mention it. It's about a woman's health care. And so to somehow conflate that with abortion, someone has to make a wide assumption that abortion is about a woman's health care, about her health, ignoring the fact that there's a baby involved in this. It's interesting to me that through the years, all the conversations and all the controversy about abortion people haven't zeroed in on that fact. The one thing that they constantly harp on is when does life begin? And you know why they do that? To divert everyone's attention away from the substance of the conversation because the substance of the conversation is very easily approved, very easily understood when you talk about the substance of Roe v. Wade. There would still be abortion availability state by state, the way it used to be. And they use this, I mean, it's it's just worn out over and over and over again. It's going to adversely impact people of color. Well, I guess the same way Planned Parenthood, every Planned Parenthood clinic in the United States is either directly in a minority community or immediately adjacent to it. And why is that? Because they want... Their founder, Margaret Sanger, she made it very clear. She was a eugenicist. She believed in controlling the population. And how do you do that? Well, you keep the types, her term, the types of people 
that aren't going to be productive in society, you keep them from reproducing. And she, of course, as a a real eugenicist did, she looked at African Americans as a lesser social subset of humans, not just in the United States, but everywhere. And that somehow, someway, she was endowed, and others like her were endowed in picking and choosing who was allowed to reproduce and who wasn't. I'm not just talking out of my rear end, folks. That's factual. We published a series of stories here through the last few years at Truth News Network from her own mouth, from quotations from her writings, sections of her writings in detail. Go to our website in the search bar, put Manger Harris, Madeline Harris, abortion, and those stories will come up. But look at the content. Look at the facts. But of course, this gives the far left another arrow in their quiver to use to attack Americans. I was at a meeting early this morning, six o'clock meeting. And we had a conversation as part of this about that. And I asked this question, how many of your wives have ever been to a fetus shower? And I got some really stark looks. Well, nobody, nobody ever has, or nobody attends a fetus shower. They go to baby showers. We have babies all the time, baby showers. So the the controversy (laughs) that comes from the left on this, they jump all over when life begins. And according to them, life begins. I mean, the, the determination of life is less than six inches. It's the space, the length of a woman's birth canal. According to the left, when that quote-unquote fetus is in the birth canal, it's not alive until the instant that it takes its first breath. And I'm not going to get into that argument. It's very, very obvious, folks. This is about control of people. Abortion has always been about controlling people and making determinations about life. So our president, he's in some deep doo-doo, as you know, about Afghanistan. He had to weigh in on Texas Senate Bill 8. Here's what he said. Today, that bill went into effect in Texas. This extreme Texas law blatantly violates the constitutional right established under Roe v. Wade and upheld as precedent for nearly half a century. The Texas law will significantly impair women's access to the health care they need. Somebody tell me how abortion is health care. It's actually the opposite of health care. It's killing a human being. He continued. This is significantly to impair women's access to the health care they need, particularly for communities of color and individuals with low incomes. And outrageously, it deputizes private citizens to bring lawsuits against anyone who they believe has helped another person get an abortion, which might even include family members, healthcare workers, front desk staff at a healthcare clinic, or strangers with no connection to the individual. 
My administration is deeply committed to the constitutional right established in Roe v. Wade nearly five decades ago and will protect and defend that right, he added. That's the president. Let me ask you this. What if, what if when it is discovered biologically, you know, that science thing, you got to follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. When it's finally put to rest that a quote unquote fetus is viable just days and weeks after it's created in the womb, that that's when life begins. What about every mother or every would-be mother throughout a couple of centuries, actually tens of centuries throughout history in the world that have actually had abortions? What if they found out, when they find out, that that baby, not fetus, but that baby was living when it was aborted? How are they going to reconcile that? What are multiple generations of people that are alive at the time when that happens? How are they going to process that? And I know of only one way for them to never have to worry about that or never deal with it. Unless there is a very isolated, significant emergency, medical emergency, have those babies. Go ahead and have the babies. I think in, in many cases of adoptive families that I know, a former coach that worked for me as the head coach of the New Orleans Voodoo, Pat, Pat O'Hara, who's the quarterback's coach for the Tennessee Titans now, in the last couple of months, he was adopted when he was a baby, and he found his birth mother, and they reunited. Pat's 45, 46 years old, maybe close to 50, and he finally found his mama, and it's a good story. They reconciled. She had an opportunity to face the baby that she gave up, and she explained to him exactly why she had to do it. There are a lot of extenuating circumstances, but she told him, I am so glad I didn't abort you. He has two wonderful sons, he and his wife, that are grown now. And she finally met her grandsons. I think that's a great story. And that should be what we promote for people who don't want or can't handle having a baby instead of going to the abortionist knife and for the power brokers to be able to make a determination who should have children and who should not based on whatever they decide that they should be based on. Not on science, folks. On political thuggery. That's what these decisions are being made on. So Adam Schiff, I just I just read what he said. He's a member of the House of Representatives, a Democrat. He's tied to some very powerful positions and people. Well, opposite of him in the House is a guy named Jim Jordan, a representative from Ohio. And Jim is very controversial. He's somebody I really like. Um, we've been playing touch and go to get him on this show, which again, 
Reminds me to tell you again, Roger Stone will be on live with us tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Central. Roger Stone, President Trump's friend, the one that was caught up in the Mueller investigation in the Russia collusion hoax. Roger Stone lost everything because he was attacked based totally upon political thuggery and his friendship with Donald Trump. Don't forget he's going to be here tomorrow morning at 9. Back to Jim Jordan. He actually came out with something that uh, is confrontational to the House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff. Jim Jordan says Schiff should testify about the Afghanistan withdrawal debacle. So Jordan in an interview was asked, are we going to get hearings in Congress to find out what went on and who was to blame? Are we going to get those hearings? Jordan said, well, I hope so, but I doubt it. I mean, the Democrats are in charge. I do think we're going to take back the majority in the midterms, and when we do, it's not till a year and a half, we can have hearings. But I doubt the the Democrats are going to do it. If we were going to have hearings, it's obvious who should come. The same people who made all those decisions that led to this debacle in Afghanistan are the same ones that were burning foreign policy back in the Obama-Biden administration that gave us Libya, Benghazi, so it's Blinken, it's Burns, it's Sherman, it's Sullivan, it's Rice. Those people need to come before Congress. Frankly, I think we need to bring in Adam Schiff too. What was Intel Committee? What kind of information did he get prior to this ordeal that we watched unfold over the last couple of weeks? Those are the kind of people who should be brought in, but I doubt the Democrats are going to do it. They're not going to do it. Jim, I love you. I like your politics, but they're not going to do it. And he added, yesterday the President of the United States said this was an extraordinary success. Come on. I mean, 13 service members were killed. You have hundreds of Americans stranded that he left behind. And you promised the military would stay until the military got them out. But you abandoned them. You have thousands of our allies left behind, including a guy who helped President Biden 13 years ago get out, saved his life. This guy named Muhammad. Then you have billions of dollars of equipment and weapons left there as well. What did Jake Sullivan say yesterday? They're thinking about paying the Taliban. They call that success. So, of course, Americans have no confidence in this foreign policy team. You know what's interesting is uh, this all makes sense, but making sense in Congress doesn't really matter anymore. (laughs) It really is insignificant. They don't care about the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. If you disagree with them on anything, they just want you to sit down and shut up. Don't bring it up anymore. We said it. That's the way it is. Let's move on. Let's talk about something we want, something we want to do. Or let's talk about somebody that did something we didn't like. Hey, COVID-19 up next. Your source of truth in a chaotic world. 24-7. Online. On your devices. TNN. The Truth News Network. Truthnewsnet.org. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language like French, Spanish, or Russian, but thought it would be too difficult and time-consuming? Then go to Babbel.com and try it for free. 
Babbel works because it's built around real life. It teaches you everyday practical conversations that you will actually use. In 15 minutes a day, you'll be on your way to speaking a new language in just a few weeks. Babbel uses a modern conversation-based technique that makes language engaging, fun, and memorable. It starts by teaching you words and phrases. Then, sentences gradually get more complex. Soon, you're practicing short conversations about real-life topics. Babbel is created by language experts who use the space repetition method to help you learn quickly and remember what you learned. With Babbel, you can speak a new language. Babbel. Language for life. Celebrating 10 million subscriptions sold. Now try Babbel for free at Babbel.com. Just go to Babbel.com and start learning a new language today. That's Babbel.com. B-A-B-B-E-L.com. We all want to be prepared. We all want to be sure that the people we leave behind don't think we're jerks. That's where final insurance comes in. We provide peace of mind for when you rest in peace. For a small monthly sum, you can spend your final years knowing that Final Insurance has everything taken care of. Final Insurance, the last insurance you'll ever need. The truth as only he can tell it. Dan Newman, TNN, truthnewsnet.org. I don't have an exclusive on the truth, facts. I'll share that with you and anybody else that wants to join us in this journey, trying to wade through all of the insanity that lays at our feet and it piles up higher and higher every day. Like this, you're gonna, you're gonna die if you don't get vaccinated, if you don't wear a mask 24 uh, seven. If you go out over the holiday weekend, Labor Day weekend coming up, you're gonna die. And if you don't die, you're gonna infect others and they're gonna die. COVID-19, our pandemic, it's really a faux pandemic. It's not, even by CDC standards, long-term standards, it's not a pandemic. Folks, all of the deaths that they quit counting and telling us about every day because the death toll continues to decline, but that doesn't feed their thuggery version of reality, right? Hospital admissions nationwide for COVID-19 patients are declining. They're actually going down. Have you heard about that? Well, the seven-day average, you haven't heard about that. I know the answer until just now. The seven-day average of new daily hospitalizations with confirmed COVID-19 dropped by 2.4% from a week earlier, about 12,280. That's the first drop since around the 27th of June. The CDC COVID-19 tracker shows the seven-day average for both deaths and cases is leveling off. That's good news for you. It's bad news for the CDC. More about that in just a second. Previous surges of cases, including the spring of last year, late July to early August of last year and January of this year, always leveled out and then dropped precipitously. During prior surges, the COVID-19 death rate appeared to be higher. And this is according to the CDC. For example, January 13th this year, which saw the most COVID-19 deaths per day, the number of daily deaths was about 4,100 with about 240,000 daily cases. In this current surge, you know, the one of this Delta strain that they tell you really, oh, if you don't get the vaccine, Delta, Delta's going to get you. Well, in this current Delta surge, 
The last day of August, the CDC said the number of daily deaths in a seven-day average to be about 900. And that daily cases is down to 150,000. According to the CDC's latest data, about 74% of all U.S. adults have gotten at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. A new study published last week revealed that about one-third of all Americans, more than 100 million, had likely been infected with COVID by the end of 2020. Officially, about 19.6 million cases of the virus were confirmed across the country. Dr. Jeffrey Shaman, who's director of the Climate and Health Program at Columbia University, said the death rate from COVID-19 fell from 0.77% in April of 2020 to 0.31% in December of 2020, meaning that by the end of this year, the COVID-19 survival rate for every demographic rolled in. Listen to this. 99.69%. Less folks than one-third of 1% of people that get COVID-19 are going to die. Now, how does that compare to the flu? Listen to this. The estimated death rate for influenza is 0.08.08. There are still more people susceptible than we had ever believed, Dr. Jill Foster said. She's a pediatric infectious disease doctor at the University of Minnesota. If the pattern continues where the Delta variant infects a significant portion of those vaccinated, the number of people susceptible rises even higher than was predicted. Last week, you'll remember, we shared this report with you, those researchers in Israel found out that individuals who had previously been infected with COVID saw greater protection against the Delta variant than those who received both Pfizer vaccine shots. I'm going to repeat that. I'm going to, I'm going to clear my throat first. Thank you. (laughs) Individuals who had previously been infected with COVID saw greater protection against the Delta variant than people who receive both of the Pfizer vaccine shots. This study demonstrated that natural immunity confers longer lasting and stronger protection against infection, symptomatic disease, hospitalization that are caused by the Delta variant compared to the BNT162B2 T2-dose vaccine-induced immunity. You're not hearing about that, are you? You know who Joe Rogan is. Joe Rogan is a high-profile podcast host now, former television host. He's a comedian. He's a UFC commentator. He revealed that he was diagnosed with COVID-19, but he took a cocktail of interventions to treat his symptoms, among which was ivermectin. In an Instagram post yesterday, Rogan said that he had returned home from a trip late on August 28th, feeling really tired. I had a headache. I just felt run down, he said. Adding, just to be cautious, I separated myself from the family, slept in a different part of the house, and throughout the night I got fever and sweats, and I knew what was going on. He said that after his COVID-19 diagnosis, he decided to use all kinds of meds, everything 
monoclonal antibodies, ivermectin, ZPAC, prednisone, everything, he said. And I also got an anti-D drip and a vitamin drip, and I did that three days in a row. He said that as of yesterday, he feels great, really, really good. He, by the way, has the most streamed podcast on Spotify, and his Instagram account has 13 million followers. However, his vaccination status is unclear. He's been criticized by public health officials for having said that healthy young people need not worry about taking a COVID vaccine. I'm not an anti-vax person, he clarified on his show in late April. I believe they're safe and encourage many people to take them. Now, what about ivermectin? Well, it's a generic medicine that can be produced cheaply in many places around the world. It's been widely used successfully, by the way, against some parasitic worms to combat scabies, lice, as well as rosiae. Yeah, ivermectin has been considered as a repurposed medicine, especially when used in early treatment in the treatment for COVID-19. Doctors and healthcare professionals, by the way, have praised ivermectin for having successfully helped thousands of their patients survive the initial waves of COVID-19. I'll end this story by just drawing that to your attention. Ivermectin. It's an over-the-counter drug. You remember another one that uh, in the very beginning of all of this, also an over-the-counter drug, when it was brought out and recommended by many experts like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, by the way, has come out about ivermectin as well. Hydroxychloroquine, oh, you can't use that. It's not approved by the FDA to treat COVID-19. Well, it had been treating lupus and other autoimmune diseases since 1952, very successfully, and it worked. It worked in our family again and again and again, and friends of mine again and again and again. In the early stages, nothing works as good as hydroxychloroquine. Ivermectin, it's another over-the-counter drug. Anthony Fauci, oh, you can't do it. It's never been proved that it works outside of animals. I don't know. I thought humans are part of the animal kingdom. You know, Fauci, that science thing, follow the science. Follow the science. What they should be saying is follow the political science. They have a version of that that has very little, if anything at all, to do with facts, right? That's all we're going to talk about on COVID-19 today. How about that? We're looking good. We're looking good. We're getting better. Good news. I will tell you this. The number one thing that COVID-19 did, it obliterated the flu. I mean, just wiped the flu out. We get no reports of flu deaths, hardly any reports of flu infections. You know why? They just term it COVID-19. That fits the political narrative. So it works that way. And I'm not joking, folks. If you look at the CDC website, go there yourself. Get the numbers yourself. They change it every Friday. Look at the numbers of flu this year, 2021, year to date, compared to last year or the year before. Look at the death count, deaths from the flu in previous years. Go back to like 2015, 2016. Do it year by year. 
Nobody's dying of the flu. Nobody's getting sick with the flu. It's COVID-19. That's kind of the virus of the day. <laughs> it, it's not funny, folks, but if you don't laugh every once in a while about this craziness, you're going to cry. So big media, I keep waiting for our government watchdogs, you know, the Department of Justice, that they're the ones that take care of every American. They make sure that no big corporation is going to get in cahoots with a bunch of people or other corporations and take over any part of our life as Americans. That's called a monopoly. Can't do that. And the Department of Justice is where this all begins, and they tell us over and over and over again. Even Elizabeth Warren, when she was running for president, we've got to tackle these big tech companies. They control too much of the social Internet world. They can't do it. They're setting even political policies on a national basis. We've got to break them up. Well, then when they won the White House, they just decided, and Congress, hey, let's go get in the bed with big tech. Let's just go join forces with social media giants like Google and Twitter and Facebook. And here's what we'll do. We'll take our union with them and we'll weaponize it against everybody that's anti-Democrat, that is against our political policies. We'll just attack them. They've been using Twitter and Facebook and Google for years, and they attack us. They exercise that thing called the First Amendment. You know, we don't like it, especially when it gives them ammunition to come out and talk to us and ask us questions factually. We don't like to be confronted with the truth. We only want to discuss in political narrative terms. And the ones that we think are the right ones are the ones that we only ones we want to use to discuss. So in the fallout of all of that, Twitter yesterday announced it's rolling out a new safety mode. It's a feature aimed at helping users deal with unwelcome interactions such as harmful posts and unwanted replies and mentions. Think about that for a minute. What does the First Amendment give us the right to? It gives us the right to say anything whether it's confrontational, whether the person or persons that sees or reads it agrees with it. It gives us the right to not have to be politically correct all the time, that we can just say what we really want to say. There is accountability built into the First Amendment, things that you cannot get away with, but free speech is the fundamental that is giving us the differences between ourselves as a nation and every other nation on the planet. In a statement, Twitter said this new feature, this safety mode feature, is aimed at reducing disruptive interactions and will be rolled out to a small feedback group on iOS, Android, and Twitter.com, beginning with accounts that have English language settings enabled. The new feature temporarily blocks accounts for seven days if they use potentially harmful language, including insults or hateful remarks, or for sending repetitive and uninvited replies or mentions. You know what that sounds like to me? I'm sorry. That sounds like um, 
the Soviet Union, um, like Hitler's Germany. Somebody's got to decide. Somebody has to define for this to ever work. Who's going to define what insults are? Or even dig down deeper. What insults are okay? Someone's going to have to define what are hateful remarks and what remarks are not hateful. Or someone's going to have to define when someone is sending repetitive and uninvited replies or mentions. In other words, somebody has to be the thought police. And of course, I don't think Jack that runs Twitter is going to hire any conservatives to make those definitions and implement them on people that tweet on Twitter. So part of the process says when the author of such a post is auto-blocked, then they will temporarily be un- they'll be unable to follow the account or send it tweets or direct messages. When the feature is turned on in your settings, our systems will assess the likelihood of a negative engagement by considering both the tweet's content and the relationship between the tweet author and replier. That's their explanation. In other words, they're going to arbitrarily, in their algorithm, they're going to build in and therefore arbitrarily censor anybody that says something or they think feels a certain way. It even goes that far. Someone is just going to make an interpretation. And whatever their interpretation is, whether it's right or wrong, whether it's good or bad, whether it's truthful or untruthful, doesn't matter. If the Twitter algorithm says it's so by jingo, guess what? It is so. So it is written, so it is said, so it is done. Wow. So we're going to go down that road again. (laughs) We're going to fight social media again. Yeah, they came out and said they were going to change change their weapons. They were going to change their philosophy every time Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg appeared before Congress. They always complied. Oh, we're so sorry. We're doing this. We're doing that. We're not going to censor any American. You know, that First Amendment thing. And then the governing side of it, the Democrat Party, they say, hey, hey, hey. You know, the First Amendment. Uh, People have to be held accountable for everything they say and write. And if it's not true, oh, we have the authority because it's a private corporation. It's not the government that's doing it. We have the power to make sure that those people, you know, Twitter gets to do it and Facebook gets to do it. They can censor whoever they disagree with. Anti-American, anti-constitutional. But that's the way they roll. Hey folks, thanks for joining us here today. Don't forget, Roger Stone joins us first thing tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. short central time, 10 o'clock Eastern. That's 7 o'clock on the West Coast. I know it's early for you West Coast risers. If you missed the show live, You can always grab it immediately after we close the show at 11 a.m. on Apple Podcast and also Spotify Podcast. 
they're grabbed right after we close out every show and they post them immediately within several minutes after the show's over you can get them there also you can go any day to our website and the story posted that day down at the bottom you'll see a link to that day's TNN live show thank you one more time for being part of our family and being with us every day have a good one folks remember this it may be bad but the best is yet to come. It's coming. Hang in there. See you tomorrow.